Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dalpena, and on today's episode, we have part two of the interview with umpire Brian R. Kane. If you listen to part one, you'll have heard about Brian's very unique journey into the world of umpiring in cricket in America. Started off officiating in soccer when he was a teenager in Pennsylvania and was involved in soccer and lacrosse as a player as well as Aussie Rules Football, got into acting on his stage career in New York City, and then eventually found his way to cricket. Well, now he goes a little bit more in-depth into his umpiring journey in the New York tri-state area cricket scene in particular. And in this episode, he talks a lot about what goes into umpiring in a bit more detail, a lot of the finer points, and a lot of the things that he's learned as he's gone on the pathway to what he hopes will be one day to officiate in ICC matches, perhaps the 2024 T20 World Cup that USA will be co-hosting with the West Indies, and who knows what else could be in store for Brian Arcane as an umpire in America We'll get to the second half of his story on the podcast. But before that, I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Take us through a typical day for you umpiring and what it involves in terms of a commute getting to the game on the subway system in New York City because I found this a bit fascinating when I was trying to coordinate setting up a time with you that uh, you were telling me a little bit about your schedule and how long it takes to get to and from the ground and I've talked to players in the past and team officials and this has been an issue in terms of the schools themselves that sometimes a match will be delayed for a half hour or an hour because a team the entire team gets stuck in traffic because a lot of the teams in the PSAL are based in Brooklyn and Queens but Van Cortland Park is the biggest facility that they have access mm-hmm. to which is in the Bronx mm-hmm. and for people who are not up to speed on the New York City geography Trying to drive from Queens or Brooklyn to the Bronx is basically a non-starter at three o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon after school. It's out. Exactly. You got to take the subway or it might not happen, period. So for you, now you're based in the Bronx, North, North Bronx. I'm based in, uh, I'm in Manhattan. I'm in Northern Sorry, Manhattan. Manhattan. Northern Manhattan, just on the -hmm. the border of like Manhattan Mm -hmm. and the Bronx. Yep. I can see Yankee Stadium from my roof. That's where I live. So that, it's, what is it's that? Directly across the river. I'm at exit, is that exit yeah. three on the on the major Deegan? What is what is that? I don't drive. I don't know what the exits are called. I'm a poor <laughs> kid who lives in Manhattan. I work minimum wage in Manhattan. I take the subway and the bus to everything I do. So, so, so <laughs> what, what subway stop? What subway stop are we talking about? I'm at I so I live at 155th Street on the C train. The Yankee Stadium is 161st Street across the river. No one knows what direction I'm facing, but it's that way. So in in the old historical tradition of of New York City baseball, you're on the polo grounds side. I am on the polo grounds. Yeah, I am. I am on the cliff just above the polo grounds. The polo ground public housing project that is now in that space um, is amazing. There's a cool little museum up here on top of the cliff that often does some old baseball history stuff. It's really cool. And the old pictures of polo grounds are incredible. They played daily football and rugby and American football there. There's a great story of uh, the Carlisle Indian School beating, I think it's Yale or something, at football, at the, poly, at, uh, at the polo grounds. Amazing history. I live, I would fall off the cliff to the polo grounds about 100 yards that way. So yeah, we're in there. That's, that's the New York geography. 
So for people who are not aware, quick, the Polo Grounds is yeah. the facility that the New York baseball giants and the New York football giants both played in until the early 1960s. And it's literally, in terms of the intensity of the rivalry and just the local geography and how it's shifted and changed over the years, the New York Giants, literally, it was, you're in Manhattan, so it's mm-hmm. right across the river. You've got, what is it, the East River? Or the East River there. Mm-hmm. East River, yeah. Both East River. <laughs> East River, and literally, it's it's a very thin strip that's the Macombs Dam Bridge mm-hmm. separated, separates what used to be the pole grounds on the east side of the river. And then just across the river to the west and north, you have the Bronx. That's all that mm-hmm. separates the Bronx and, and Manhattan. So on the east side, if you were in the Manhattan side, you were a Giants fan and a New York Giants, New York baseball Giants mm-hmm. before they went off to San Francisco. And on the west side, you're a Yankees fan. That's what separated the two, the two fan bases. And um Polo Grounds doesn't exist anymore. And like you said, Brian, <laughs> it's now it, it turned into a yeah, public housing. It's public housing, yeah. You would not recognize it nowadays. It has no not not a single trace of any remnants of what used to be a baseball football. There are ground. old there are old steps that you can't walk up that I have walked up. But uh yeah, there are old steps that are that are sort of the last remnants of the old polo grounds that are mostly covered in trash behind a uh, behind a fence next to the parking lot of the polo grounds uh, housing housing there. So it's that's where I live in Manhattan. That's where you so live. From, yeah, that's so. where I live in Manhattan. So to go to Van Cortland Park is easy, but the cricket that I'm doing these days, most PSAL actually is happening out in Brooklyn and Queens now. They use Marine Park a lot. They use Idlewild. They use there's three different fields at Baisley Park at the Cage in the middle and then down the south. Um, so they use all those spaces. Casina, they, they use. Casina Boulevard. Mm-hmm. I was at Casina yesterday in 40 degree weather. We played three T10s at Casina yesterday in one of the Bangladesh leagues, the Bangladeshi Crickers, Cricketers Association of North America, I think is that one, as opposed to the NYBPL and the NYBCL. All right, so if, so if you're doing a game but in anyway, Queens, yeah. Queens or Brooklyn, how early do you need to leave to get on the subway? And what's your subway route to get there and then get home? Yeah, it's a bit different for PSAL because it's just one game in the afternoon. I sort of get to take most of the day off and then sort of leave uh, in the early afternoon. But let's say it's a Sunday. So a Sunday in 2021, I will have gotten up before 6 a.m. So that or sorry, so about 5.30, I will get up. I will have packed all of my stuff the night before have my lunch stuff laid out that I can make quickly in the morning, water bottles chilling in the fridge, get up at 5.30, I leave here around 6.15 in order to get to somewhere like Baisley Pond or Idlewild Park by eight o'clock or 8.15 a.m. for a nine o'clock start. So I have to get there at least an hour early. I try to get there early because I'm typically the one setting up the stumps and the 30 yard circle and often the boundary because they'll often get to bring their cones for the boundary luckily there's some that i've brought that are slashed in the bucket but just just to cut in quick just for geographical purposes again so so you're in manhattan upper manhattan yep. on mm-hmm. the upper west side mm-hmm. uh idlewild for people who don't know idlewild is the former name Way of out. JFK. jfk airport yeah. so mm-hmm. idlewild literally you have planes flying and landing and taking off all day long idlewild cricket field is mm-hmm. right on the boundary fence of jfk airport Yep. So to get from where you are in Manhattan to that part of Queens, that's roughly the distance it's quite Two a while. Two trains and one bus that takes uh, on a good morning, that will take an hour 45. On a bad morning, that will take two hours 15 to get out to a place like Baisley Pond or Idlewild from where I live in Manhattan. Um, so it's, it's really good. I've become very good friends with the bus system 
way out in Queens, like the B8 and me, our old friends, uh, you know, the Q38 or whatever it is that takes me out, the Q17, that's what it is, that takes me to Baisley Pond, old friends. I could fall asleep on that bus and wake up when it stopped at my stop 20 minutes later. But yeah, the, the transferring is, you know, you can, you can lose time transferring from a train to a train. If there's a marathon in town that day or if the president is in town that day, everything will be delayed and delayed on the New York City public transit system. So yeah, I arrive at about 8 a.m. for a 9 a.m. game. And you said you start on what, the C train you said? Yeah, I start on the C train and then I'll transfer either to like an E or an A or something or sometimes generally an E to get out to Queens. And then also the seven train that I take out to Metz Willits Point and do either Flushing or Casina uh, Park out in that section of Queens to take the seven train. But yeah, and you need the E train to get out. Flushing, the, so that's the Corona Park. There's cricket grounds mm -hmm. inside Corona Park, mm -hmm. which is adjacent to the US Open Tennis Center. Yep, and the tennis, City yeah. Field. Yeah, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful location. All the grounds there are quite small and not really taken care. Most, I mean, all the grounds are not really taken care of the way that you would want them to be. But yeah, if I show up, for, I show up at 8 o'clock, 8.15 for a 9 a.m. game, I then set the field. I'll probably have been putting on my sunscreen on the bus because by the time, you know, I arrive, I'll probably be the first person there. But by the time I've laid out the 30-yard circle and got a few bits of equipment out for the day, the players will start arriving. And then I won't have off again until the mid-innings break. Uh, so typically, so last year in 2021, I would typically do a 30-over game in the morning on a Sunday and then a 40-over game in the afternoon on a Sunday starting at 1 p.m. So we'd finish a 30-over game before 1 p.m. starting at 8.30 or 9 a.m. Quickly transition and do a toss Sometimes I have to change shirts because the morning game might be a red ball game and the afternoon game is a white ball game. So I'm often changing shirts while I'm trying to throw a sandwich down my mouth while I'm also trying to collect team lists from some of the teams. And then, then you have to make sure that all of those players that are there are actually the players that they say they are because guys will be paid to come in and play under somebody else's name because they're not supposed to be making money while they're in this country and all that kind of stuff as well happens. So yeah, I'll, I'll do a 40, a 30 over game in the morning and then a 40 over game uh, in the afternoon. So eight plus eight, it's 140 overs in a day if we go through all of it. So test match cricket can suck it and they can figure out how to do more than 80 overs, 90 overs in a day. We can easily play a hundred overs in in uh, white ball one day cricket. So anyway, test match day needs to maybe extend a little bit. So I'll do that. And then I take the same bus and subway combo back. And that's after the ground has been completely cleaned up uh, after the second game. That's often the umpire's responsibility in club cricket because we're the ones who are the key holders uh, to the boxes and to the places where they keep the artificial matting that we play on and where they keep the equipment for the day. So yeah, um, in the summer, you know, my partner and I have all sorts of agreements about how we are going to spend time with each other because I, in, in the summertime, am gone starting at 6 a.m. on a Saturday, and then I will see them again at 10 p.m. on the Sunday when I've come home. And then on the Monday morning, I'll wake up and write all my reports from the weekend. If there were any incidents from the week, um, I'll have to write up. Uh, reports. I often do ground reports on the grounds that I go to because the leagues talk to each other about how the grounds are holding up and how the equipment at the grounds are holding up over the year. So it's a long, it's a really long day. And I do that every Saturday and Sunday from May 1st until it snows.
he mentioned a lot of things there. Ringers, I forgot about ringers. I'll never forget. I umpired. They would tell you make sure that the players are registered in the CLNJ. Players have to be registered by Wednesday, Wednesday before the, the match they're going to play. And you can do a check. And if they're not on the list, then it's ineligible and the team may forfeit the game afterwards. And I wasn't really, I wouldn't check too much, but I remember one time I, I umpired a game and this guy opened the batting and he was incredible. I thought, geez, like, where's this guy been all, all season? I haven't seen him before. Mm-hmm. Damn, he's pretty good. Like, where are his stats? This is kind of weird. He's, he doesn't have any stats. And yeah, he was a ringer. He just they yeah. brought him in and like, I forget if he played under a fake name or he just, he registered like the night before when he had to be registered a full week before. And it was like, like, oh, like, it was like literally the, the only time I checked the registration the entire season. Mm-hmm. And I, that was the one time I found a ringer. And, and so mm-hmm. they won the game, but they wound up having a forfeit after the fact because it, it was procedurally, it was, he was ineligible. Playing um, under protest, they call yeah. that in a lot of these leagues. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> but you've got the ringers, you've got all this, stuff you have to do in terms of yeah filing reports you talked about ground reports match reports so just checking that the, that the names correspond and there is sometimes guidelines in the, in the league rules that say you can, you can you're theoretically entitled to check driver's license or players have to bring an id to make sure that that id that they submit on the team sheet matches mm-hmm. the id that the person is supplying so that yeah they're not playing under fake name or you know it's, it's not joe smith and it's actually mahela jaiwardena who's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. joe smith for the day they weren't ringers. They came in last year in the National League. They had played their requisite like three games in the season or ever. But one team had brought in Devendra Bashu and Gunakesh Moti, two West Indian spinners. And this was a final in the, in the New York National League. And they it was over. It was a 40-over final that was over in two hours because these guys just came through and they spun the game and they, and, and, they, and they batted through and finished it in two hours. It was incredible. So you get these ringers like that. That'll come across. But in terms of administratively, so you talked about the ground mm-hmm. reports you have to file, mm-hmm. checking all the documents and mm-hmm. making sure the players match up and they're not using ineligible players, uh, ground reports, match reports, if there's an infraction or an infringement, the player needs to be written up. And you're, you're doing this as somebody who's, like you said, leaves at six, gets back at 10, 10 at night. So there's an extreme level of commitment. What to you is the most frustrating thing that you experienced over the course of a match or a season that makes you think, is it really all worth it? That's a good question. What is the most frustrating thing? There are reams of paper that are full with Excel sheets this long, full of frustrating things. To me, it's some of the basically like lackadaisical attitude toward showing up on time, starting a match on time, and then needing the overrate. Um, as a as a person who you know is, is getting really into this umpire thing and at the higher levels everything happens on time you wait 30 seconds for the clock to tick over to 10 o'clock and then first ball go you know when when there's professionals around you at the club level sometimes it's a nine o'clock game and the two captains show up and the first ones to show up at 9 15 a.m and then they will demand that they play their full 30 over game even though there's a 40 over game coming on in now just three or four hours on the same ground. So that to me, the sort of lack of any understanding of professionalism, even when we're amateurs, but showing up, writing your list, getting there on time, having matching uniforms, that's sometimes a price issue, sometimes a manufacturing issue, but can you all at least wear the same color? Things like that. That to me is the most frustrating. You call it professionalism. I call it basic human decency and common courtesy. 
<laughs> I'll never forget. I umpired a game in Secaucus at the Laurel Hill ground in um, Secaucus. Have you ever umpired a game there? The Laurel mm-hmm. Hill? The, the one with the, it's sort of, a, um, they've got stands around and there's lights. That, lights, that yeah. Situation? Yeah, I know yeah. that one. Uh, very nice ground, or at least it was when it opened. I'm not sure what state it's in currently. But, it's a soft um, pitch, but it's good. It's very nice. It's crowned. It's nice crowned outfield, so you get a natural slope and you get genuine boundaries. But I'll never forget, I did a game and the one of the teams showed up. So it was usually South Gujarat Cricket Club was usually the home team there. And then because I think they had a permit, then whoever was their opponent in the league would play. So it was the opponent was the issue. They showed up late. Mm-hmm. And according to the rules, you forfeit the toss. So they only had like five or six guys at the time the toss, the latest possible time for the toss. They finally get like eight guys there, which was the minimum. And mm-hmm. captain was upset at me because I, I said, sorry, you forfeited the toss. It's like, no, come on. You know, it's just it's a fun cricket match. We're playing a fun cricket game. Why are you being such a hard ass? Like, come on, like wait for our 11 guys to get here. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, these are the rules. Like we're playing here. Yeah, it's, it's meant to be, you know, uh, an amateur league and a casual league in a sense. But we have the rules in place for a reason, A, but B, it was the sense of like, well, I'm playing the match and I well, the match will start when I feel like it. And the match, will, you know, I want to get my full 40 overs in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, why can't you delay the start for an hour? Because we all want to play our 40 overs. And it was just yeah, lack of kind of respect for other people's time, which pissed me off. So that was the start of the day that got me annoyed. You, you maintain your umpire neutrality. I wasn't like, oh, these guys showed up an hour late, so I'm just going to give them all LBW so I can get out of here of and make up for it. But you, you keep in mind, and you're just like, all right, if this is how they start the day, I'm not giving them any slack for other stuff, like mm-hmm. drinks breaks, which, mm-hmm. again, are supposed to be three minutes, but then drag on to five and ten minutes because they're doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff, the most ridiculous of which was one of the players, his son, it was his birthday. So at one of the drinks breaks, the mom slash wife shows up with the kid and they decide it's time to cut the birthday cake (laughs) in the middle of a cricket match. And so we're in, I think, the second drinks break in the first innings because, again, they had the field. So the South Gujarat won the toss, chose to bat first because they knew that they were going to be batting against a team that was only fielding eight players. So Mm -hmm. they had, you know, all of these open spaces to score runs uh, throughout the first innings. They finally got their 11 guys to show up. Second drinks break comes around. They have this ridiculous, it went on for 10 or 15 minutes, this cake cutting, birthday cake cutting. You know, I, I'm telling them, guys, drinks break's over. Got to get on the field. No, no, no. We can't go on the field. We have to sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. And then, you know, after we sing happy birthday, and when we got to cut a cake, we have to light the candles. The candles wouldn't light. They're screwing around with all this stalling while mm-hmm. South Gujarat is. They're there to play a cricket match. Yeah. And I'm there to officiate. It's, it's not about me, but it's just respect for time. I came, the match is supposed to start at 1030 or 11 o'clock, whatever it was. And I'm committing seven hours. I'm expecting to be able to leave at six o'clock to go home. I have shit to do. Yeah. You want to play your cricket. I have shit to do. Yeah. Other people have lives. Okay. Yeah. We get to the end of the innings and I tell them, guys, your overrate was terrible. You have to chase the target. I've calculated the time. You have to chase the target now in 35 overs. Right. Yeah. What do you what do you mean 35 overs? What the hell? Why are you being such a hard ass? This is ridiculous. Like, guys, you started late. First of all, you didn't show up on time. You you forfeited the toss. You so right away you didn't have any respect for time to show up on time. You st- we started late because we needed to wait for you to have the minimum number of eight players to take the field. 
match can't start until you have eight players. So the match started late because of that. Okay, so the clock started at the designated time, but the match if the match doesn't start, that time comes off your overrate. Sorry. Exactly. And then you compounded that by the fact that you felt it was imperative to sing happy birthday to your son and cut the cake in the middle of a cricket match. You could have waited. Which is very nice, but you can do it another time. Hey, and the argument from them to tell me I'm such a hardest and callous and cold-hearted bastard was we invited you to sing with us and we offered you a slice of cake. (laughs) Why are you, why are you being so mean to us? We, we had you be part of it. You, You know, we, we said, would you like some cake? You were there to, to sing too if you wanted. Like now you're trying to penalize us when we offered you cake. I didn't want cake. A and B, like <clears throat> it's not the I didn't point. see cake in the playing conditions. I didn't see <laughs> but it. But yeah, it should be, yeah. yeah. We, it, it, the drinks break can be extended to allow for birthday cake cutting and singing. I said you could have done it at the innings break. You didn't have to do it then. You could have mm-hmm. waited another hour, 40 for 45 minutes, whatever it was. You didn't have to do it at that exact moment. You chose to. That's your fault. Meanwhile, South Gujarat is pissed off at me, saying that they should have chased the target in like 32 or 30 overs. They're saying I didn't penalize them enough. They said mm-hmm. I was too lenient that I only shaved off five overs. Like, what are you doing? It was ridiculous. The time extended this and this. And I said, well, guys, you know, I gave some allowances because you hit so many damn fours and sixes that they had to chase after the ball and find it. And so, you know, the ball was lost a few times and I gave some allowances for that. But like, whatever. But then. So frustrating. It you know, happens. but it was, yeah. it was, it was Every like. Week. It was just the, the human common courtesy and human decency of like, again, I got shit to do. I expect to be out of here at six o'clock. If the game naturally goes to 6.15, 6.30 for whatever rain or uh, environmental factors or whatever, mm-hmm. there's just high scoring, lots of fours and sixes, balls lost, somebody gets injured. That's fine. I'm more than willing to accommodate for that. And there's conditions that the umpires can accommodate that for that as well. There's no umpiring condition to accommodate for cutting a birthday cake or because you guys yeah. are too easy to show up on time. And, you know, they're probably, if any of them are watching, listen, they're going to say, oh, this guy's a you know cold-hearted bastard. He, he wanted to get out of there for 6 o'clock because he didn't want to sing happy birthday to my son. And what kind of mean person does that? Good for your son. Happy birthday. I'm not, I have nothing against your son. I have something against you for stalling and affecting everybody else's plans mm-hmm. for the day. And so it's, it's just that, to me, you again, you say professionalism. I just think it's a lack of... It has nothing to do with professional amateur because to me, yeah. professionalism is a mindset. It has nothing to do with mm-hmm. being paid or exactly. unpaid or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, again, human interaction, basic human decency, human courtesy. Show up on time. If you've agreed to start a match at a certain time, show up on time. Yeah. No respect I've for heard... the other people who were involved in that occasion. I don't understand. This was one of the things that I, you mentioned it earlier about Columbia being a sort of diverse on purpose club. And it's one of the only ones that's diverse on purpose. And we had a couple pretty productive conversations about showing up on time and what that was about. And we heard, we heard from a few people that from our South Asian players that said, it's not part of our culture. It's not part of the culture of playing cricket, how we grew up playing it. It's not part of our culture with just like dinner and family and being on time, like being on time, right. Is a thing that the British invented when they brought trains to India Right. And then tried to force everybody. Right. I mean, I mean, this, this is what I studied in, in, in college. This is colonialism and post-colonialism stuff where being on time, running on a schedule, that's a thing that was that was brought to them by the colonizers, you know, in a lot of ways. And I think that the expression of them wanting to play cricket on a Saturday or a Sunday and have it just be their relaxing thing. It's 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 their golf. It's their tennis. But without access to 
country clubs, you know, because that is another thing that is that it is reserved maybe for one class of people. And I don't agree that that's the way you should be coming to cricket games. Is it 915? I've tried to understand a little bit better and tried to try and work out ways around it. And I think teacher voice helps when telling people that you need to cut overs because you can and being tall and pretending that I know what I'm doing and teacher voice sort of helps me to move on those games. And I've got a bit of, you know, respect around, but it's still just not part of it. Some of these guys come off. I'll get there at, I'll get there at 6am or sorry, I'll leave at 6am. I'll get there at 8am. Right. And there's a couple players already there. Where are they? They're in cars in the parking lot sleeping because they're coming off their 12 hour overnight Uber shift. And they're trying to get in 60 minutes of sleep before they come out and play the game. And they don't want to get dressed and come out and do a toss 30 minutes before they start. And I don't think it's okay. I don't think it's okay that we start the game late, but I'm trying to understand a little bit better and trying not to get so frustrated about it because it is, it is frustrating. It is frustrating. And I think that as we, as the game grows and as it professionalizes, I think that this will grow again. There's no, there's no robust youth program that teaches the rhythm of how to get into the game here. A lot of people are coming from somewhere else. They play here. It's something special. It's something different. And I hate starting games late. It is my least favorite thing because I am there. I have showed up on time. I have done the unpaid labor to spend two hours on the freaking subway to get here on time to make sure that your stumps are up, that your mat is out, that your 30-yard circle is, is laid, and you guys cannot get here on time to start the game. That's about me, right? It's about playing as much cricket as you can and making sure everybody gets the most out of the day. I don't know that I would have allowed the, the birthday cake on the field. To me, that sounds, let me, let me look it up. It's right there in the law book. That to me might constitute a refusal to play <laughs> under which the umpire has the right to end the game and give it to the other team. You're gonna uh, have to, that uh, may have happened in that situation. You're going to have to get yeah. Tom Smith <laughs> to uh, add a, an uh, appendix. In, uh, the, uh, Tom Smith addresses what to do in the case of a birthday cake at uh, during break. I'm sure it's in there somewhere. I've got I've got a couple old versions of Tom Smith. I've got one from the 1950s and I've got one from the early 1960s back here um, that, that Tom Smith actually wrote. And I'm sure in there, there's something about cake, 100%. <laughs> what you did not mention, in terms of the most frustrating experience mm -hmm. at a cricket ground, getting arrested. What, oh, what, yeah. I can't believe that was not right at the top of the list. I thought that was going to come firing out, getting arrested at a cricket match. So... For people who have read Netherland, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of zany things that come across in the book Netherland. Joseph O'Neill, mm -hmm. who is the vice president of the Staten Island Cricket Club, and a lot of the experience, anybody who's played against Staten Island Cricket Club, you talk to the members, you talk to Clarence Modest, you talk to some of the other members of the club, and you ask them about Joseph O'Neill and his inspiration for Netherland, at least the cricket aspects of the book. And 99% of the content is straight out of club matches and experiences that have been happening with Staten Island Cricket Club, either in the yeah. Commonwealth League or the World <laughs> Series League and things that have actually happened. And one of the incidents was that's described in the book is a bowler comes on to bowl and he, he takes off his hat to hand to the umpire. And then out of his pocket, he takes out a gun and mm -hmm. hands it and puts it into the hat to give to the umpire. So the umpire mm -hmm. can hold his gun and his hat while he has his bowling spell. So you see some pretty wild and crazy stuff in New York city that actually happened apparently. And he fictionalized it slightly, but it's something that actually happened in club match. 
for you getting arrested. And there's, there's, I think there's some incidents in the other one where guys get arrested. There's threats of players being mm-hmm. arrested if they don't scram. How did you get arrested? What, what led to this? <laughs> Take me through the whole course of events. Uh, our game that day, it unfolded a lot like you would expect the raid of a prohibition speakeasy to take place. We, this was a charity match uh, between two pubs. There was an Aussie pub and a English pub, and they had put together teams of their expat staff and then had filled in the players with some local guys that I had helped supply and that Columbia had helped come up with. Um, I was sorry, the, where, where was the game? Where was this? Stables, Van Cortland Park Stables, the beautiful, <laughs> the one and only Van Cortland Park Stables. I was the event manager for the day. Um, I worked for one of those pubs at the time, and <laughs> we thought we had worked it out that we had gotten the permit that was inclusive of having booze with us. It was a charity match. We were raising money for the Australian Wildlife Fund, I believe. Um, and so there were going to be people there bringing baskets, bringing lunch. It was a little T20 that were going to play in whites. It was all very nice. I wasn't even umpiring. I was, I was playing slash coordinating slash umpiring. I did everything that day. But we thought we'd worked it out that we'd gotten the permit that allowed us to have a bit of booze. So our supporters could come. We were sponsored by two different beer companies, that, or a beer company and a gin company, which each sponsored the different pubs. And we had people bring their hampers and their baskets. And we promised them all this stuff. And we got through, I think, just about the first innings um, before someone noticed or someone who was in the stables maybe called and said that we were drinking beers out on the field and there was all this stuff. And one park police showed up and asked us what we were doing and we tried to explain them what we were up to. And then they called on the on the horn, on the blower, and four, five more park police showed up. A couple of them stepped out of their car having heard that the situation was escalating and that there was disorderly conduct going on in the field. And so uh, Officer Perez got out of her car and she first thing she did was whip out her truncheon and stick it in my chest and say, you're being disorderly. And I said, we have a permit for this. We're just trying to play. We're just, we don't really understand what's happening right now, why you've come here. There's children here. There's like players and their wives with, you know, hampers and baskets sitting here having a picnic, whatever. And then like a, like a raid of a speakeasy, they found all of our coolers, right? Which were just sitting out on the field and they individually took out each beer and counted them because apparently each beer was a $150 fine or something. So they counted each beer and then put it in the back of their own trucks. Were they gonna smash them later and pour them down the drain like they did in Prohibition? Probably not, probably a huge party. The parks department, uh, police department that night. That's so, a great. That's a great asset seizure. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Eminent domain. Exactly. So, like me as the event organizer, right, and then the two owners of the two pubs who were the who were the captains of the teams got arrested. We got little cuffs put on. We sat in the back of the car. They wrote us our summons. They gave us a court date. The whole deal. I think we got lucky. Somebody at the somebody at the Bronx DA decided that we didn't need to be prosecuted for the crime that we committed. I guess the documents that we submitted to them afterward had been good enough and they called us the night before our court date. I'd already taken off work, called us the night before and told us we didn't have to come. I thought you were going to tell us life without parole for drinking beer on a cricket field. Exactly. That's why I'm here. This is my parole, actually. This is my sentence. I've been hired to be an umpire 
by the US Department of Corrections in order to serve my time and just stand there for 12 hours a day and be tortured by the same ball being bowled wide over and over and over again. This is my personal bad place, right? <laughs> what constituted disorderly conducts? We were asking them what the rules were and could they please cite for us the law or the statute or the reasonable good-hearted nature of human to tell us what exactly we had done wrong and never once were we cited by that law never once were we told no you can't have this beer your permit doesn't actually cover it nobody did that it just escalated and escalated and escalated i think luckily enough we were calm enough and the police i guess were calm enough in collecting their couple hundred beers there was a lot of beers but so, uh, there wasn't the police didn't have to be called because you gave somebody LBW and it sparked a brawl. No, that hasn't happened. I've seen that happen on fields, not on my field, but another field at Van Cortland Park where apparently there was a knife involved. This is somewhere in the 2014 region, I believe, where there was a knife on the field at Van Cortland Park. Somebody had to get called. But I see Officer uh, Perez sometimes. She's still employed at Van Cortland Park and through the park police. I see her sometimes. I don't know if she knows me, but I know she is. So it's funny. I give her a little wave every time. I don't know that she knows, but why I'm doing that. But yeah, it was funny. The charges probably, got dropped. She probably recognize you because but, you don't yeah. have the cooler full of, of beer. She's got, she puts the two and two together. No. She recognizes you as the guy who brought uh, this too much, too much uh, beer that was causing yeah. disorder. Without the beer, probably doesn't recognize you. There were a hundred more beers in the trunk. We just waited till they left. <laughs> then we're more careful for the rest of the day happens do you feel you got your money's worth with the arrest or do you feel like you could have kicked up enough of a, a more of a fuss to uh push the boundaries so that you would have uh you wouldn't have been released so easily and but gotten to go home nah. at night? no i don't know i don't know that i would have done well in the court system i'm a soft suburban boy i don't know that i would have done well in lockup for the night so I'm, I'm glad it didn't work out that way and i'll cite my privilege again we were three white guys, you know, if we had been a little bit more angry or if it had been a different situation, it might've ended differently. But the police that day certainly did not help to deescalate the situation as it was, no. Maybe they can hear us talking about them because we can hear some sirens going off in the background now. Yeah, yeah the, the sirens have finally come in. Yeah, uh, that's the part. I live about eight blocks from uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital. So it was, a, it was a treat during the first six months of COVID how the sirens came through the neighborhood can imagine sorry to make it dark <laughs> even darker the court system and then the first six months of COVID. i'll transition to something slightly slightly more back to cricket so you talked about a lot of things to do with getting involved and in going up the pathway mm -hmm. so at, at one point i can't imagine it would have been when you were being arrested brian helping to organize and officiate oversee a mm -hmm. charity match but at what point in your cricket journey as an umpire did it dawn on you or did a light bulb or something click in your mind where you realized that you're actually good enough and respected enough that you're being recruited to get larger assignments or when I say larger assignments mm -hmm. outside of New York City or better paying assignments mm -hmm. where, yeah, they would want you to fly in from out of state. And in conjunction with that, like part B of the question at what point did you realize that you could genuinely attempt to make a professional career out of umpiring in the sense that professional, you could earn a living and get paid enough to pay the bills through umpiring mm -hmm. full-time? 
So I spent uh, about 18 months in Pennsylvania in 2016, 16, 17, because uh, I'd lost my job. I told some of that story earlier. It's pretty much when I came back to New York from there. There wasn't much cricket where I was living in Pennsylvania. There was a bit of tape ball stuff. And then I would go to Philly as often as possible, do tour games for Columbia, try and umpire some games now and again when I could. Um, but pretty much when I came back, to New York in 2017. I had a full-time job. I was working for ostensibly a really cool company. I was working for the Anne Frank Center. Um, so I was the national education assistant director. So I would travel all around the country and teach kids about the Holocaust, who most of whom had never really heard of it before. So I was doing really deep, kind of important historical work. And at the same time, I just was getting deeper and deeper into cricket. My boss, who's one of my really good friends at the time at, at the end, Frank Center said to me one time, she goes, listen, I've looked over at your desk a few times today and all you've done is you've only had cricket pages up all day. Uh, are you doing your work for this company? And I'm like, yeah, I'm doing my work, uh, but I'm, I'm also trying to do this work at the same time. I was trying to study, I was trying to figure out what I was doing that week. I was also on the board of Columbia at the time. So 2017 is when it started. And then over 2017, 2018, I really started to realize that I was getting good at what I was doing. I'd been gone from the New York scene for almost an entire, for almost a whole season. And players told me they missed me. And league organizers said, damn, man, it was rough here last year without you here. And I said, okay, that means somebody is starting to respect me for what I do. And it's around that time that I yelled again loud enough to get in touch with the USA CUA and get invited to come out to their trainings through uh, Nick Grant and Dewitt Coleman, who are doing the trainings there, which is where I met Danny Khan. I met Danny Khan in early 2020. Um, around 2019, I guess the 20, sorry, I'll go back. In the 2019 season, I did about 70 games of cricket in 2019. I played a little bit and I umpired as much as I could. I did a few weekday uh, last man stands games, which I'm going to do again this year, which will be fun. And I just was like, I'm spending too much time doing this. So at the time I was working for the Anne Frank Center, I made about 40 grand a year. Um, and I also worked on Thursdays and Friday nights at that same Aussie pub that we had been arrested from. I was the Mater D on Thursday and Friday nights at that restaurant and pub. And then on the weekend, I would umpire cricket games. And that was the only way to survive, to live my life in New York City. I got a partner around the same time, Mel, who is an incredible human being, um, who I live with now, who we sort of fell into each other and fell into a life that we really liked. And the decision came up at some point. Do you want to be a full-time teacher still? Is that what you're going after? Do you want to be a full-time museum professional? Or do you want cricket to take up all of your time? Because right now, cricket is taking up too much of your time on top of having a full-time job and a second job in order to pay for my life here in Manhattan. And so at that moment, I made the choice. I said, I, you know what? I'm going to try and do something else. I'm going to try and work part-time again. And I'm going to see if I can do a part-time job at the same time as I'm doing cricket. I can do a bit more in the winter time to try and make up for it. And that was great. And I made that decision sort of late into, 20, late into 2019. And I started going to these higher level trainings in early 2020. And then the whole world changed. On March 13th of 2020, I had started a brand new job at a school downtown a week earlier. And 
<laughs> by Friday of my second week, we were sent home initially for a week and then it was two weeks. And then by the time the school, I got paid basically to work at home at that school and run their online, basically I ran online after school programs, which was extra enrichment, storytelling, poetry, art, stuff like that in the after school space. And then when the new school year started, there was no money for me. I had no job. I was unemployed. I had spent the entire first six months, eight months of the pandemic doing nothing but watching as much cricket as I could. I watched historical cricket matches. I read through Tom Smith a couple of times. I watched myself on video as often as I could umpiring to see how much I could get better. And then when the season came back in late 2020 and then in 2021, I decided this is what I'm doing. I'm going to work part-time. I'm going to do this as often as I can. And I'm going to try and make good money out of this. I have never expected to be a rich person. Even when I was working 40 hours a week at a job in Manhattan, I was only getting paid $40,000 a year, which is, you know, a lower class income in this city. People in other parts of the country may, you know, balk at that, but $40,000 in this city is feck all. So I can make $40,000 a year with a combination of temp work and umpiring cricket because I can make $500 on a weekend all summer. And then with the additional LMS jobs, PSAL in the early part of the season, I'm making the same amount, you know, nearly the same amount of money that I was making working full time doing umpiring every week. The problem is, is that that's inconsistent. Problem is, is that April showers exist. And in the last week, I've lost $750 in the last two weeks. That's my rent. I pay $1,200 a month in rent. $750 is the bulk of my rent for this month. So I am going to work some second shifts at the church that I work at. I'm a very unreligious person, like aggressively unreligious. I have debated priests live on stage at events. So working at a church, scrubbing toilets of the rich Brooklyn kids who go to the preschool of the church I work at, it's is in service of this thing that I'm trying to do, which is to be cricket umpire. I can see it happening. I've heard your reporting about how much these players are getting paid. And if we could, you know, some of the players, not all of them in minor league cricket, the, the lowest paid players only get paid as much as the umpires do for a game, but the lowest paid players get as much as the umpires do for a game. And everybody else goes up from that. And there's no scaling up from that. And we keep getting told there's no money to scale up from that. We had games canceled in Houston. I flew to Houston on my own dime to umpire eight games, 10 games of cricket. We got a whole day washed out. I lost two games. That's I paid my own way to get there, even though I was in Texas sitting there. Couldn't work for my temp agency while I'm sitting in Texas. And I only get paid for the eight games that I did rather than the 10. So these are the things that are really frustrating about cricket more than just people showing up late. And to me, I've sort of, like we talked about earlier, now four hours later, I found myself in the same position right about this year, where I was in my acting career in about 2012, 2011, 2012, where I was right on the cusp, where at some point, somebody's going to offer me a lot of money to do the next step. But every time I get to the next step, the umpires there tell me how much they are disrespected and how little they get paid. So I have committed to this for now. And I, like I've talked about over the last three and a half hours, I'm really intrigued and I really want to be a part of cricket for a long time. 
I, but I need to figure out a way to do that. There needs to be a youth program that'll, you know, that'll pay me to come through and coach during the week or in the winter time when there's, when people are doing indoor nets, maybe one of the nets places, you know, like the players do, I'm soliciting for sponsorship. I've talked to all the equipment dealers. I've talked to all the shops around New York. I've talked to individual dealers and stuff about getting paid some money to wear their undershirts or to have them buy my shoes for me, to have some in-kind donations to my in-kind sponsorship for what I'm doing. Between January 1st of this year and what is today, April the 18th, I've spent $1,200 on cricket equipment for umpiring, as well as travel to and fro games. And it's April. Um, I haven't made that much yet. So I'm working at a loss at the moment. And so I'm looking for more ways to put myself out there, more ways to solicit for sponsorship, more ways to be able to work more fully in the game. And in conversation with people at the highest level of this game, they've told me that right now there isn't necessarily money or drive at the national governing body level to make that happen. Um, so I'm wondering where else that might come from. They're talking about putting together panels of you know, junior and senior panels of you know, some of the best umpires in the country, but there's no discussion of whether or not there'll be stipends for those. And there's no guarantee, obviously, that I would get put on one of those panels. I think I know what I'm doing, but it's very possible that I'm not one of the top 15 guys in the country. I want to be. I think I've worked hard enough to be in consideration for something like that. But making this a full-time job, as you know, <laughs> comes with a lots of back and forth negotiations with leagues, negotiations with my partner <laughs> to, I'm, I have to be away for this long and I have to spend this much money on something. And so can you spot me rent for two months or, or sorry, not two months. <laughs> she wouldn't do that for two weeks. Um, so I can wait for my check to come in from the PSAL because I've done whatever, 10 games in a couple of weeks, but that check will come at the next pay cycle for the New York City public school system. So it is happening and I am hopeful and I am ecstatic at how quickly cricket is developing. We as an umpiring fraternity need the national governing body as well as the leagues who are paying to make all of this stuff happen to invest in us umpires because you might be able to bring Ken R. Lewis in for a weekend but he's not going to respect the local umpire who you've thrown in to that game who probably hasn't read the new set of playing conditions in a couple of years and I find it fascinating that they're is a group of us now who is traveling around the country, who is being called because we've made ourselves available. I scrub toilets at a church so that when Danny Khan or Jermaine Lindo or when Vij uh, Vijaya Malela call me and say, can you go to insert American city here in six days? My answer is yes. Let me talk to my partner. I have three rats at home, three pet rats. So I wave goodbye to my three little pet rats but then I'm able to disappear four days later for a week because I've made myself available. But I probably won't get paid for that for three weeks. I probably won't see a paycheck for 
the next month. And I'll collect my money on the weekends and do what I can at home to keep on living in Manhattan because where the hell else am I going to live? I don't know. I don't own a car. I love it here. I moved here on purpose 12 years ago because this is the place I wanted to be. And people tell me, move to Texas, move to Houston. So you could do, you could do cricket every single day in Houston. Great. <laughs> I'm don't know. I'm a, again, aggressively unreligious person. So Texas is kind of hard in that way. And my partner doesn't conform to their gender. So I don't feel safe in Texas or in Georgia or in North Carolina. And those are the three places where cricket is sprouting up in the world. New York is losing its power, not those places. They're gaining in their cricketing power. And those are places I don't necessarily want to live full time. So there's a lot of decisions to be made day after day about how I'm living this life and the struggles it takes to do that. You're a guy, you've got a jar of change, right? You got a change jar, you got a big old jar of change. Not anymore. Not anymore. I turned mine in so that I could make sure I had enough money to pay for dinners out in Texas. That's where I'm at. So I love this game. I don't have health insurance, right? If I get smacked in the face because Ken R. Lewis hits a ball 100 miles an hour back at my head, I'm going to get charged $100,000 for a hospital. So these are the risks I'm taking because of this game, because it's incredible, because of some fascination or ADHD hyperfixation. You know, I have gotten looped into this game and I love it. And I'm not going to stop. I'm just going to keep improving as much as I can. I'm just going to keep putting my face out there as much as I can. And I, it sucks when some of the older generation of umpiring uncles come to me and say, Brian, you, you can't just do this for the money. This isn't a job. I'm like, mate, you have no idea how much I have struggled for money, how much I have, you know, <laughs> how much I like, I, like I said, I, I moved to Pennsylvania in 2017 or not 2017, sorry, 2015 with $200 in my pocket. I bought a bike for $100 because the guys at the bike shop felt bad for me. I turned in my old bike, which is a piece of crap. Let me buy a used one for $100 just so I could ride my bike five miles back and forth to the bar I was working at. So these are the places I've been and cricket in a lot of ways has uplifted me out of that. I'm just sort of mentally, I'm waiting for it to do that financially. And I don't need to be rich. I don't need to be Owen Morgan rich or IPL rich. I just want to make enough money to live a lower middle class life in New York. Today's episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first and original turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now one of the premier venues for the minor league cricket T20 franchise tournament. Located at 5515 McKeever Road in Pearland, five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288 and a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. For more information, call 713-534-2195. That's Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Got a couple questions about some of the financial aspects that you talked about and how umpires are treated in that regard. Mm -hmm. So a couple of just basic factual points I want to establish building up to kind of the broader point. So Mm -hmm. how much would you estimate that you spend typically on expenses in a month or in a year towards transportation and and other umpiring things that you talked about in terms of uniform, other equipment, anything that goes towards umpiring. So so again, transportation, that could be 
subway fares, if you've mm-hmm. got a metro card or you're paying per fare, or things like traveling out of state, plane tickets, and if it's Ubers, rental cars, any mm-hmm. of that kind of stuff, how much would you estimate you spend on a monthly basis or a year that is expenses? If I'm exclusively working in New York City, travel expenses are pretty minimal. I ride my bike to Randall's Island and I did about 50 games there last year. So that was great. But yeah, getting on the subway, you know, it's a, it's, it's a $3 subway ride times two every day, times every single Saturday and Sunday for the whole uh, summer. Anytime I go to New Jersey, though, that's a $30 back and forth New Jersey transit train ride. And then obviously, anytime you go any further than that, you know, you're going to pay in, in for planes and things like that. I'm yet to do a one of the pop-up tournaments where any of your travel is paid for. Minor league cricket, luckily, has taken on travel cost for umpires. It's mostly for, it's mostly gas, but I was able to work out with, with Josh at minor league cricket last year, their, their finance guy, that I don't have a car, so I'm not going to turn in gas receipts. I'm going to turn in train receipts. Is that okay? And he worked it out that that was fine. So the only time I've ever been reimbursed for my travel is through minor league cricket, and that was the nine games that I did in minor league cricket last year. So in a month, $100, maybe a little bit more. I don't have exact numbers for what I spent last year, but like I said, this year, I've already spent $1,200 this year in equipment and membership fees and travel. So I'll tell you what, the, the most expensive stuff that you get is not your membership fees is not any of that kind of stuff. It's the stuff you have to purchase overseas. So nobody in America is making a back gauge. This has to get shipped over to you. Nobody in America is making a ball gauge. So you have to order these online and pay a lot more money for them than you would if you were in uh, your home country. Each one of our jerseys is good athletic material, somewhere between sort of 30 and 50 bucks for these shirts. Some tournaments will give them to you. Some of them won't. I spent $160 on a hat and a box for that hat to go in because as you move up the levels of umpiring, they expect that you have better pants, better shoes, better hats, better counters, better equipment sort of overall. And then you wait to get reimbursed for those. Uh, I've talked to umpires who do the US Open every year who typically lose $500 a year when they go to the US Open because the US Open doesn't pay for any hotels, any travel, any food, any anything. Some of the other tournaments will, Houston, DC, Atlanta, pay for a lot more than that. But yeah, it's a lot. It's a, it's, it's, it's a lot on my balance sheet. I've heard experience. I've had personal experiences where not to this extent, something has happened, but mm-hmm. there's a tournament in Florida. I won't say if it's the U S open, I won't say the name of it. Oh, you don't have to say what it is, but the tournament in Florida that I attended once several years ago, there was almost an umpiring mutiny because these umpires, not all of them, but some of them traveled from out of state to come umpire and officiate and they were expecting a specific fee to umpire through each day mm-hmm. and one of the days got rained out was i think the first day of the tournament was there was a significant number of matches that were rained out and the tournament organizers stiffed them because the tournament organizer claimed well i'm paying you to umpire per match that happens if the match doesn't happen i'm not gonna pay you mm-hmm. and it was for what was ostensibly meant to be a large scale event, I thought it was penny pinching. And 
the umpires felt completely disrespected, but it was more the principle that they traveled, they've paid out of pocket, like you said, oftentimes at their own expense, not everything is covered, especially when this event was happening. And they were counting, they had budgeted that the fees they expected to make per day would offset some of the travel expenses. And that didn't happen. And so they said, screw it, we're not going to come the next day. And so the next day of the tournament, they were short umpires, because there was essentially a protest that the umpires said, screw you. And without telling, they just no showed, they didn't tell in advance, they just mm -hmm. no showed on the day, genuine protest to say, you know, you shortchanged us money, we feel we were owed rain or no, no rain. This is what we were told we were going to get. And there's that lack of respect at times that I've seen from umpires. I had went through an experience in New Jersey where me and another umpire were, it was a private tournament. We were promised a certain fee and it was supposed to be a per match fee. And there was, I forget if there was two matches on this day or three matches on a day. It was a 2020 tournament. But we were umpiring basically the whole day. We got there at like 9 a.m., 10 a.m., whatever, and stayed until 7, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. You know, just standing in the sun the entire day. And at the end of the day, we were shortchanged. They gave us what we thought was the per match fee. Mm -hmm. The organizers stiffed us and said, no, that's your daily fee. And we said, no, that's not what we agreed to. No. And so then my umpiring partner no-showed the next day. So this was the first day Saturday. He no-showed Sunday. So I was stuck to umpire alone. What wound up happening was the teams agreed somebody from the team would supply themselves at square leg, but I would be the standing umpire for the entire match. And so I'm essentially doing double the work as the standing umpire throughout the entire duration of play. I'm umpiring alone. Mm -hmm. And on the Sunday, the organizer gave me the same fee. He didn't give me the fee that was essentially would have been equated to two umpires. I was doing mm -hmm. double the work. He still gave me the same fee that he gave me the day before, which was still well under the agreed fee. It was supposed right. to be a per match fee instead of a per day fee. So I got into an argument with the, uh, the organizer and said, you know, this is garbage. You, this is a complete bait and switch. We agreed on a fee and now you're giving me a runaround. And there's a reason why I, I'm part alone today is because you screwed over my partner. And I decided I'd give you the benefit of the doubt. I came back today and you're screwing me over again. And I just got a big sob story about how, well, we're paying you in cash and we don't have the money, but we'll get the money by next week for the tournament semifinals and the finals. Mm -hmm. And then I know I showed, I said, screw this. You guys, yeah. you guys can treat me this way. I'm not, I, I didn't tell them. I just showed up or sorry, I no showed for the semis. And then they, you know, I got a call that morning. Where are you? And the game's about to start. I said, well, you, you guys screwed me over. You treated me unprofessionally. So, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So I've seen that happen in Florida. I've, I've experienced it firsthand. The fact that umpires, you, you have, you, it's affected you when you travel to events, you're paying out of pocket. And if a, a match gets rained out, sometimes the organizers, oftentimes the organizers, they won't pay you for a match that gets rained out. They say, no, we mm -hmm. won't pay you for the match that happens. So we're not committing to paying you for budgeted expenses, whether the matches happen or not. And in your position, that can dramatically affect your income and your ability mm -hmm. to continue with this. So from that standpoint, I'm just curious when that does happen, how does that affect you on a very personal level? Just mm -hmm. the fact that being able to pay the bills, mm -hmm. how, what trickle down effect does that impact you? And does it affect in any way your decision-making processes in terms of committing to events, particularly the out-of-state events, which do require more expenses upfront where you run the risk that if some or many matches get rained out, you're going to come back making a loss and was mm -hmm. it actually even worthwhile? I've yet to 
be really put in a tough position about that. That tournament in Florida that doesn't pay for anything. I, I was told kind of early last year that I wasn't on the list for that. I was told like a month out that I probably wasn't on the list for that. I said, okay, thanks. Because I've heard enough stories from my colleagues that that is kind of a hard one to do, that people come back making a loss every time. It's a weird spot. And this is why I, I relate it to the acting quite a bit, because there are a lot of umpires out there. And this is, again, where my privilege and I guess sort of my position as a, as a citizen of this country who's not here on a visa, that I sort of have the freedom to work when I want. And I really can, my temp agency is pretty nice. I really can call them and make up with them and sort of make up hours with them. This week, there's no PSA. So I'm working a lot this week, you know, at, at my temp job. But I know umpires. I was talking to a colleague of mine just the other day. I won't say who or where they're from, but they tell me that in their region, they umpire for free 25 to 30 games a year. And every single time that they do that, it adds to the culture of, well, these guys don't need to get paid, right? And so I think that that culture permeates cricket because the umpires are, even though it's written right in the laws there, to respect the umpire, respect the umpire's decision, shake hands afterward. It's written right in the spirit of cricket that that's part of, of what you're supposed to do. And people in cricket will talk about sort of in this lofty way, oh, you've got to respect the umpire's decision. It's never been that way on the field. It's as bad as any soccer game or any lacrosse game or any Aussie rules football game that I've ever refereed. This as far as the some of the some of the talk back that you get, some of the stuff that you get from players. Um, not even from players, it often is coming from team owners or from people involved in like the management group of teams who think they have some power in that team who are wearing a jersey on the side of the field and they've paid the money to be there and they're the ones who show the most sort of open disrespect to you but the money to me is worth it when it comes because it was sort of making most of my money off of New York games right making most of my money locally I get paid $100 to do a 30-over game on Randall's Island that I ride my bike to. I get paid $100 to do a minor league game that I have to ship myself to. I get paid $80 to do a T20 in Houston or in Atlanta during those franchise uh, pop-up tournaments. So even less than the going rate of the minor league, which is you know ostensibly on the same or even lower level than some of you know all the overseas players they would have bring to these franchise tournaments. So the decision to go on these tours is necessary in order to meet people like Rushane Simmons uh, from Jamaica, who was in Texas, or he's from Atlanta, but he was in Texas recently to to be able to be on field. So in Houston, let's say, where I just went, we had an entire day rained off. We lost a game's worth of pay for that. We had two games rained off on the one day, but then we played three the next day to make up for it. Um, but yeah, I was expecting to come home with, with some amount of money, with a fixed fee for what I was getting. And then we ended up, it was a, it was a per game fee. And that knocks my, my take home back. It's not worth it, but it's worth it for the experience. I hate that. I feckin' hate that. It's the same thing they said in acting. You got to do it for the experience. But guess what? I did two games in a row. I did a quarterfinal and a final on field with Jermaine Lindo, right? One of the top three umpires in the country. And he's also an assessor, right? In those games, he is watching my performance. He is taking notes and then he's going to write a big full report about those two games that we did together. 
and send those off to Cricket West Indies. And Cricket West Indies will read those and say, okay, he's done one. That counts as one assessment, those two T20 games. I need to do four. And after I've done four of those, then I can take my oral exam and then I can become fully certified through the West Indies, which will open me up to doing club games in the West Indies, CPL, that next level of stuff. I'm going to get a full certification from a full member nation. That's good for me. I can't eat from that. So it's hard because I want to do both, right? I want to be able just to go for the experience. And my colleague who I was talking about said, oh, I don't mind paying my own expenses or not even getting paid for the guy. I just, I just want to move up the ladder. I cannot move up the ladder unless I'm getting paid and getting paid fully to do that. And that's what's really frustrating because I think I'm possibly the only person doing this, trying to be a full-time umpire. Those other guys that I mentioned, even the guys like Vijay Malela and uh, Samir Bandekar, they are only in this country because they have full-time jobs that give them visas to stay in this country. If they lose those jobs, if they spend too many weeks away at cricket tournaments, they're going to lose their visas, right? So they have to make a lot more decisions about which tournaments they're going to go to and which tournaments they're not going to go to. They don't need to make decisions about how they're going to pay their rent because they're getting paid full-time to work for big corporations who are paying them real salaries. I don't have that. This is, this is how I make my money. And so it's been challenging because I will accept everything. I will accept an LMS game on a Wednesday afternoon at Van Cortlandt Park. I will, I will do four PSAL games that week, even if it means I don't make dinner for my partner every night, which is what I usually do here in my home. I will not be here on Saturday and Sundays because I have to work for 12 hours in the day to make sure that I get paid for that. It then sucks when you get paid less when you're being called on the phone and said, we need you here. You're one of the best. You have to come to pick an American city where there's cricket. You have to come to this. It'll be a great experience for you. There's going to be international coaches there. You'll get an assessment done. The players will learn who you are a lot more. Great. Can I do that without turning in my change jar to make sure that I make it home from Texas? So I make a lot of decisions. My decision on what tournaments I go to is pretty much always yes. As long as a, like a hotel and like breakfast and lunch are paid for, it's pretty much always yes that I'm going to go at this point. But how long can I sustain that? I don't know. We'll see. At some point, I'm, I may have to quit, not out of my own desire because my you know, hyperfixation has run out, but because my landlord is going to knock down my door. So yeah. Sorry if I'm being overdramatic too, but oh. my goodness. We were all about the drama on the stars. This is where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> the more the this merrier. is my life. This is a good segue to, I guess, my, my final question cool. uh, on the big picture. Taking all those things into consideration, what you've just discussed and how challenging it is to try and make this a full-time career just because of all the various issues in U.S. cricket and mm -hmm. that kind of pathway that might not necessarily exist in terms of there being not necessarily a first-class structure, but the T20 pop-up events and minor league and limited other things like that are really pathway, if you want to call it that, to try and make a name for yourself. Do you honestly see a pathway towards rising to the point where you would be able to stand in an ICC level match, whether that's ICC Americas at a T20 qualifier mm -hmm. or an ICC World Cup in 2024 at the USA's co-hosting? And 
if you do see that pathway existing for yourself or for anybody who comes after you, like you said, you hope to inspire kids mm -hmm. to see umpiring as a profession and be a trailblazer in that way. What do you think it would take for you to progress along that pathway, whether that's just more match experience or a certain level of certification that you need to keep achieving and progressing? Mm -hmm. You need to talk level one, if it's level two or three, all these kinds of things. What do you think it would take to allow you to progress to that point to be able to stand in an ICC level match. And do you see that as a possibility for yourself? That's the goal. I mean, you talk about wanting to inspire kids to, to see umpiring as a profession. I'm the first one doing it this way. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to big myself up about that, but you know, I've met a hundred umpires in New York and then we do sort of 30, 40 person calls, you know, group calls when we, when we we're prepping for minor league and stuff like that. And the pathway is not exactly clear because of sort of USA cricket's status as an associate, not a full member, but there are, there are people leading the way in front of me, the three men I've already mentioned, Jermaine and Vijaya and Samir, they are the, the current crop of ICC qualified USA umpires. And we see the kind of success that they've had getting invited to ICC events. All three of them were invited to the under-19 World Cup. Only two of them were able to go. And the stories that have come out of the under-19 World Cup is that the umpires from Ireland and the umpires from Afghanistan and the umpires from other even full member countries are asking Vijay and Sammy where they got their equipment. And how did they prepare for this? And, oh, I didn't know you needed to dress that way to do your pitch inspections. So there are people who are paving a path in front of me in very much the part-time way as to what an American umpire is capable of. VJ has done the vast majority of his training in the USA through the West Indies Cricket Association. Jermaine has done all of his umpire training. He was not an umpire ever when he lived in Jamaica. He has done all of his umpire training in America and he has come through and he's my assessor. He's the next guy. He's the next, that, that's the next rung for me is getting where they are, is standing in a major league cricket match when that comes about next year. And then, you know, probably not for 2024, I will serve my time as, my, as long as I need to, but that is the next step is sort of where Vijay and Jermaine and Samir, and then also guys like Rushain who have come from the West Indies and who have already done CPL matches, who have already done high level club cricket in the Caribbean. That is the next step that I'm reaching for. I'm under the impression that I'll be able to get my next certification and pass my oral exam this year, uh, which will qualify me to do matches in the West Indies, which that's then a whole tour on itself to go and do some matches down there and maybe do an exchange. That's where I see the sort of technical side of it. And with major ICC events coming to the U.S., I'm sure they're going to want a small coterie of U.S. umpires to be there. And if I can be in the top 10, top 15, and be in the selection conversation for those junior and senior panels that are coming up, and then also any standing in major league and standing in any of these other, you know, maybe international tournaments that are coming through as well as sort of regional under 19 and adult stuff here. Those are my next steps. That's the technical next step that I'm pretty confident I will be able to get to 
in the next year, year and a half. I'm sort of reaching toward, not ICC level, but reaching toward fully certified West Indian in the next year. Making it a profession, fully paying for my life, getting a bit of money involved, I have always been prepared for that to need something extra. So that will be some combination of sponsorship, but sponsorship is hard because any company that sponsors a player is going to have an inherent sort of, what word am I looking for here, sort of conflict of interest about also then supporting an umpire because there's, there's really inherent anti-corruption issues there. So as far as sponsorships going, I'm looking for a company that's really interested in cricket but hasn't yet decided to jump into the sponsorship game. And you know what? I, I will come, I will answer phones at your law firm if you pay for my shoes for the year. You know, if, if, if you pay me 15, 20 bucks an hour to come work at your law firm here, you know, I'll, I'll answer phones all day. I'm, a, I'm an education professional. I'll, I'll come tutor your kids. I'll come babysit, you know, like you've done <laughs> and, you know, all these things. But I would, so what I think it's going to take sponsorship wise is if there's a company who's willing to put themselves out there for me and say, come work for us, come work in our equipment shop, come work at our school, come work at our lawyer's office and answer phones. And then with the understanding that every time you get a call to go to one of these tournaments, you get the days off, you know, and you go to those things. And American businesses don't work that way. So that's a little bit difficult. Beyond that, I also am doing all my part-time jobs, you know, keeping things up in the background. So I don't need to make much to do this. I'd hope that as I sort of go up the ranks and the players around me get more famous and get paid a lot more, that my salaries will go up. Technically, I'm pretty confident that I will, I'm pretty confident that I'll keep getting better. And that if this is the kind of level that I land at where I'm at now, then, then I'll come up with a different plan. But if I can keep advancing up through the ranks and I can see that there will be some money in there somewhere, then I'm going to stick to it. I've heard from Buckner. I've heard from these guys who have done CPL and who have worked on international panels and stuff like that before. We talk about how much we get paid, you know, for those sorts of things. And if I were to do a few weeks in the CPL, I'd be set for a couple months back home, you know? So part of the plan here, even with my partner involved, is that we might try to go to a full member country for a year, try and make some connections in Australia, make some connections in England, and then see if I can disappear and do club level cricket in England for an entire summer and see what kind of money and experience that gains me internationally that I could, you know, maybe keep doing this and then eventually go up and do World Cups and ICC events and those things. Then I'll be set. They get paid a lot, right? I'll tell, well, I'll tell you, Brian... <laughs> One of the things that shocks me about UK club cricket culture, yeah, in general, in American, by comparison, you wouldn't believe how much better it is in, in America. League umpires in the UK, generally speaking, a Premier League level umpire might only get 20 pounds or 30 pounds a match, plus maybe gas expenses, but mm -hmm. the league will only pay 10 mile maximum radius for you to travel. They don't want you traveling far because... The supply and demand, just basic supply and demand. They've got more people to do it. Whereas I'm going to have to get good enough to do like county second elevens or something. Then. But like, yeah, for so more dollars. it's shocking. Like in New York, New Jersey, yeah, you can get 100, 120 bucks a game versus in England. Yeah, best you're looking at maybe 30 pounds a game 
I'm going to Afghanistan. They got to pay. There well. you go. <laughs> you go to Kabul. I'll be the one good. American who's coming in like, hey, I'm good. Like, I'm good. But similarly, <laughs> players I've spoken to who have gauged their interest, do you want to come to Manchester to be a part of a club for a season? Mm-hmm. And it's just basic dollars and cents. Some of the guys who are on the fringes of the U.S. national team, mm-hmm. you tell them the offer is if they want to play as a club pro in England, First off, they, they have to be a certified coach. They're not even going to start the conversation at a club right. in England if you're not yeah. coach because they expect you to be able to coach the juniors and do some other coaching during the week to help make yourself valuable to the club. But you might get 100 pounds a week, whereas you know for well, some of these guys who play, they you know, essentially barnstorm mm-hmm. up and down the coast in New York, New Jersey, D.C., whatever. Some of these owners, owners in uh new york new jersey pennsylvania dc they'll throw guys who are at the u.s fringe level. Not they don't even have to be regulars in the u.s national team they can be fringe mm-hmm. u.s national employees they might get 300 400 bucks a game on a weekend mm-hmm. and you tell these guys well, don't you want to come to england and get the experience play on turf wickets you're not playing on turf wickets in dc and new york and new jersey it's all artificial your game is kind of deteriorating yeah you're making money but your game is deteriorating they say Hey, I got to pay the bills. If I'm getting mm-hmm. paid 400 bucks to play in New Jersey, New York, it can be the crappiest wicket ever. I'll take the money and worry about the consequences later, but I can't yeah. afford to develop my game in England on turf wickets if they're only going to pay me a hundred pounds a week or, you know, weekend, whatever. Um, so it's, it, and umpiring is the same. I was shocked. I, I couldn't believe how much more money I can make in New Jersey and New York umpiring games than I could get in, in England. It's stunning. Wild. Talk to my friends in Australia next and see what happens there. I'm not sure what the going rate is on Australia, but in the UK, yeah, I don't know if England is the best option for you. Of all the things you talked about, the experiences you've gotten to expose yourself alongside Steve Buckner and Samir Bandekar and Vijay Malela and Jermaine Lindo and some of the other guys, Shane, you mentioned, who, like, as you said, was in Texas. Latina Nemdar was also one of the umpires mm-hmm. down there in Texas. All these guys are on the circuit. Danny Khan has been around a long time. Mm-hmm. They've been doing this. 10, 15, 20 years or more. And they grew up in a heavily dominant cricket culture and it was always around them. So even when they weren't umpiring, it was always around them growing up. They were, it was ingrained. Mm-hmm. You've got the double whammy of you don't have the experience and you didn't grow up with the game. So you're playing a rapid, rapid game of catch up. Mm-hmm. I mean, the amount of the amount of games that you're discussing, you know, 70 plus games a year, the, the volume that you're getting, you're playing a, a, a very fast game of catch up to close mm-hmm. that gap. But what else do you feel currently in terms of what you think you need to do to close that gap to improve your chances in terms of something that you feel you might be deficient in or is just missing from your umpiring resume Mm -hmm. that you feel will help close that gap in order to speed up the progression and get you further or or faster along that ladder, climbing Mm -hmm. the ladder to try and get to the things we talked about in terms of, yeah, whether it's ICC or major league cricket assignments or anything else that would be considered elite standard cricket, whether it's in USA, Caribbean, CPL, or at international with the ICC. What's been great about being on that, that circuit with some of the guys you talked about is that they are very willing and very open. And it's part of the system at that level to give feedback constantly and without deep criticism and without sort of taking it personally, like this, you, you just learn some stuff on the field that no one has ever told you before, or a very small thing. Every umpire puts their arm out like this, right? To stop the bowler from coming in, right? Stop that. Talk to Peter Nero, the head trainer in the West Indies. He'll tell you, put your arm down. Nobody does that anymore. Don't put your arm out. Just take a step to the side. 
technical stuff, little stuff. Nobody told me that until Peter watched a minor league game and then sent me a list of stuff that I could do better. So I'm getting feedback at this point pretty constantly, at least when I'm doing these franchise barnstorming leagues and stuff like that, when I'm doing minor league cricket, I'm getting assessed, I'm getting feedback on what um, I can do. There's some technical stuff that I need to improve as far as that goes. I'm communicating with my fellow umpire because most of the work that I do in New York, like you did in New Jersey, is by myself. I do both ends. I try and get double paid for the day. That is a ton of experience for me at the bowler's end, but it means that at the striker's end, I have some stuff that I still need to work on, confirming signals, you know, stuff like that, that I've been assessed for and that are things I need to improve. But this and then the... the Yes, yes, you do halfway. It's like you do two up, you do one down. Two up, yeah, one one is over here, and then halfway, you got to go like this, halfway to the over. Every time there's a wide or a wicket or a dead ball or any kind of interruption, you got to look over and confirm. So you can also confirm five and four if there's been a no ball or something. And that's stuff you didn't learn until getting up to these next levels. I was talking to some of the umpires in Texas and they said, oh, you're looking really good. Your outfit looks really good. But they, at the ICC level, they might want you to have different pants. Different pants? My pants, they're fine. They're black. They fit me. They're fine. So, they, so there's some they say different pants. You know, is this like they want you to like, I'm thinking like, geez, yeah, gosh, I used to show up umpiring games in like Dockers. Mm-hmm. Do they want you buying like Armani? Like you got to go to Macy's and the like the, the no, no, no. custom fitted, you know, tailored. What what do they want? I found a very good pair of pants actually. They're mostly on Overstock from American Eagles. They don't make them anymore. But I'm a 32. I'm a 32 waist, 34 leg. So finding like athletic material pants that are also professional looking, fancy enough looking for for umpire work because they're not just track pants. You know, they're they're business pants, but they're made of athletic material. So they're very specific things I've spent a bunch of money on, but it, it's little stuff like that technical stuff. But I think the biggest thing sort of in my way to getting to any of those things is just how quickly American cricket itself can advance. I'm, you talk about my sort of lack of experience. I'm basically riding the wave of my lack of experience because every time I tell a player my story, they're like, damn, that's interesting. Right. And every time I talk to a new umpire from somewhere, I talk from somebody like, oh, yeah, you're that guy. You're the tall white guy from New York. Hey, good to see you again. And I think that the people who are doing cricket at the highest level in this country are prepared to make it their full time gig. And I think if we can all sort of unify, terrible Joe Bidenism, but if we can all unify through cricket and sort of bring ourselves together all at the same time, which it seems like we're almost on the cusp of doing now that we'll all go there together, that we can sort of rising tides, lifting all boats. But I think that will require a lot of people giving up power that they perceive they still have, despite the fact that they're losing it quickly. So I think that we're in a real transition phase here from what was old American cricket to new American cricket. And if our National governing body cannot get suspended by the ICC for 10 years or something, right? Like, let's, if we can get through this World Cup and then into what is hopefully an Olympic year in 2030, I think that the launch pad that then happens is going to be incredible. And I think there's a lot of us that are going to slog through the next seven, eight years to get there. And 
I'm prepared for that. I'm just hoping I can pick up those coaching gigs on the side too. Let me ask you about this. The ICC treatment of umpires mm-hmm. in terms of the marquee matches where you can be assigned to mm-hmm. officiate a large extent of that has nothing to do with actual umpiring competency. Mm-hmm. And the most important factor is just citizenship or where you're born mm-hmm. compared to FIFA where, so what I mean by that is test nations in order to umpire in a test match or in a test nation, you have to be essentially born or, or from a citizen of a test mm-hmm. nation. So only Australian umpires could potentially umpire a game between Pakistan and England. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're a USA umpire, you might only be able to umpire matches with other associates mm-hmm. uh, at senior level with the potential of exception. Maybe, yeah, an under-19 World Cup, you mentioned the guys who went to the West Indies from the USA in that event. Compared to, say, FIFA, where you could have a USA referee mm-hmm. refereeing a match in the World Cup between England and Argentina. There's no different class status differentiations. What is your overall feeling of the simple classification to do with nationality where an American umpire could be just as competent, if not more competent than an umpire from Australia or Mm -hmm. the West Indies or Sri Lanka, but just by virtue of the fact that they're American, they would never, ever get a chance to officiate in a test match. Mm -hmm. I would love to do a test match. That would be absolutely incredible it would be literal dreams come true since i discovered what cricket was i love test match cricket i love first class cricket but i understand that my path to getting there is is very rocky and i'm gonna have to do a ton of t20 games at the highest professional level before we get there where i think uh myself and people like jermaine and these guys who are who have trained themselves basically over the last six or seven to ten years who are now at the highest level we have a partnership with the West Indies Cricket Umpires Association. The shirt that I wear, that one, has a USA logo on it and a West Indies logo on it. And when I'm fully certified to work through the West Indies uh, Cricket Umpires Association, I'll go spend my winters there and work first class games if I'm, if I'm selected to do so. I think that there are strange paths to doing that, but I think it's possible And I think that even beyond test matches or first class matches, I think that 50 over cricket will continue to grow. I don't think we're going to kill the 50 over game quite yet. There's at least three or four cycles of those World Cups coming through. And I think with the under-19 World Cup is such a good example of the, the one we just had where you've got teams like Afghanistan coming through regionally. You've got teams like Japan and Oman and the UAE, even places uh, like the Ugandan under-19 team is quite good. Those guys are great on Twitter, by the way, the Uganda group. But like there are, I think associate cricket will grow. I think that the pressures coming from the international group of associate crickets, even though they don't have sort of technical power within the ICC at the moment, I think the sport is shooting itself in the foot. And there needs to be a bit of a generational change to make sure that the game grows uh, around the world. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that there are different statuses of different countries that if you play, you know, the USA should be able to play against Argentina in a test match if they want to. Who cares? Put them in Van Cortland Park and play for five days and call it, what, why can't you? I know that there's lots of things, but yeah. 
everybody knows the challenges that are posed to the players. Mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people necessarily give an awful lot of thought to the challenges and the obstacles that it presents the officials in this situation. Yeah. And you go back to your previous answer, you're talking about you feel like the speed of your progression or your ability to progress is dependent upon USA's overall administrative Mm -hmm. progression, their advancement in world cricket and Mm -hmm. the success of the men's national team or the women's Mm -hmm. national team on the field of play. And if they succeed on the field of play and rise, essentially at the moment, it could theoretically be up to the men's team and whether or not they advance to ODI status or full member status Mm -hmm. to determine whether or not you would ever get to officiate. Of course. Do you feel that those two things should be decoupled or are still in together? Or as you alluded to, do you think there's still a pathway for you independent of USA where you could Mm -hmm. go to the West Indies and progress through a umpiring pathway through that route a bit easier mm-hmm. yeah i mean i'm i've basically tried to look at how i'm gonna go about this career as if i'm a player you know soliciting for sponsorship trying to figure out where you know where else i can use my skills can i go barnstorm an lms tournament for a week and go make a bunch of money you know or like a little bit of money there and at least get my face out there a bit more i think that if usa is going to there's 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 a lot going on with USA getting full member status and whether or not that will include test matches and I know they put out the whole plan about becoming a full member in 10 years but where are we going to play first class cricket and how many first class uh, competitions are we how many first class teams are we going to be able to have there's a plan I've, I've mentioned my partner a few times they come from a very small town in the middle of nowhere and moved to New York, basically, after escaping the terrible situation that they were in. And the idea of moving to an Australia or an England or somewhere in the Caribbean to make a bit of a career move for them is also very open. They have partners that they work with in Nottingham in the UK. And so we've sort of made a few connections there, sort of very just like floating the idea out there. Hey, my partner, Brian, he's a cricket umpire. He's in the U.S. We're thinking maybe we'll come over for a year. She could get a job and work over there. And, you know, I could I could go over there uh, with her and sort of try and make a life out of that and see if I can get myself. I maintain an ECB membership. I pay every year 15 pounds for an ECB membership. I go to all their AGMs online and stuff like that to have my face out there to say, hey, if I show up one day, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. I have a history with Australian football, so I have connections to Sydney and Melbourne. And I have some journalist friends who I've met through random connections and a great day out at Lords that have, you know, said, oh yeah, we'll talk to some people. We'll do this. Well, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can get you over here. It would be great if you lived in London for a stay. That would be awesome. How can we do that? I don't know. I'm going to have to find a way to pay for it. I'm going to have to make enough money here in American cricket to be able to do that. And if cricket goes the way a lot of things go, you know, in America, then our top paid players, you should be making a bunch of money pretty soon. And they're going to demand a higher level of professionalism. And I think that if we can get some good management in the development side of things, whoever it is that's going to be running the umpires at USA Cricket, we need somebody to fight on our side. We need somebody to... There's a lot of talk about unionizing right now. I'm not talking about starting an umpire's union or anything that's official. Although in 10 years, I feel like that could really be a thing. I know the MLB umpires uh, have a union and some of the other high-level officials have, have unions. So I think that if we could get to a point where we're working in national and regional sort of 
like a database out there of all of us standard fees so that you know when you're going into a kid's game at this level, it's this much. When you're going into an adult men's game at this level, it doesn't matter what league is, they have to pay you this much. If you're gonna get called to go to somewhere, they have to pay for your flights. So they have to pay for these sorts of things to make it accessible and to make sure that that level of professionalism keeps rising. So all of these are dependent a little bit on the success of cricket as a whole. Moving to a full member country has always been sort of in the back of my head as a plan. I've emailed Claire Polisak. I reached out to her. I reached out to Cricket New South Wales and said, hi, I'm Brian. This is what I'm doing. Are there opportunities? No, there aren't many opportunities right now for somebody like you, but hell of a job you're doing. You know, I spoke to the director of the ECB ACO at their AGM. He was like, oh, we have one American here. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know who any of you are, but if I show up in your country at some point, will you pay me to do cricket? So yeah, there are plans, whether or not any of those happen or whether or not I'll be an aide in a school again in two years and, you know, have a completely different life is, yeah, kind of up to the success of cricket as a whole. Overall, all the things we talked about, mm -hmm. what do you enjoy most about umpiring? Why do you do it in the grand scheme of things? And why would you recommend umpiring to somebody else if they asked you why they should get involved through all the experiences that you've discussed? This is a game that especially in the modern times is ostensibly for elite athletes, but it comes from a tradition of being for nerds. And I think that there is a place in cricket for both the elite athlete and the nerd, uh, whether that's somebody who is in a booth doing statistics all day and you know running complex data models on stats to try and figure out the best way to do something, incredible. Go do that. Nerds love it. I'm a history nerd. So what I've done is I've watched a bunch of old cricket to try and figure out where new cricket comes from. And I read big, thick books in order to educate myself about the game. I read parts of this book. It was hard to get through, though, this inside the selection room. There's so much going on, you know, that uh, I'm messing with you now. But yeah, this is a sport for both the elite athlete and the nerd. And I think that if you fall somewhere along that continuum, you can be in cricket and you can find a piece of cricket that really means something to you. And it means something to me to be out there and to do this game joyfully. It brings me joy every time I signal a wide, every time I give somebody out LBW, every time a captain comes up to me at the end of the game and says, that game went really well. Thank you. That's the most positive part for me is meeting people from across cultures and across the world who are brought together by this stupid stick and ball game with these little, these little sticks at the back. You hit those, they're different. I don't know. But like everything about this game just to me screams history nerd. And if I'm able to exercise some of my skills as a teacher and as a coach, while I also get to interact with some of the best athletes in the world, I'm in. What, what is there not to love? People ask me why, how I got into cricket. And I said, have you seen cricket? This game is joyful. And when it's played joyfully, it is an incredible experience for everybody involved. Sage words from Brian Kane. Time for favorite 11. After four plus hours of... Oh my gosh, yeah, let's do it. 
Now, I try to tailor some of these questions to the guests specifically from episode to episode. You said you you technically consider yourself part of Philadelphia, grew up in Philadelphia, Northeast Philly. Very important cheesesteak question. Are you a Pat's or a Gino's cheesesteak man? I have two fingers for Pat's and Gino's, one on each hand. The best place to go if you're going to be in the city is Jim's on South Street. Jim's on South Street. That's Brian Kane's favorite cheesesteak. Pat's and Gino's. Get the double middle finger. Your favorite Philadelphia sports moment in your lifetime? When Ron Hextall, the goalie for the Philadelphia Flyers, left his crease and met, what's his name? Patrick Waugh, R-O-Y, Waugh, at mid-ice for the best goalie fights in hockey history. Ron Hextall. When, however long it is from his crease to center ice, he did that faster than any goalie has ever moved in history. And he clotheslined Patrick Waugh and took him out. And as a young, aggressive man in Philadelphia who loved a bit of hockey, who was also a soccer goalkeeper who loved to take out people's legs, Ron Hextall and Patrick Waugh fighting at center ice in a hockey game. Fighting in hockey is nonsense and it should not be allowed to happen but that is a formative it's a thing that sat in my brain and said i'm from philadelphia i am aggressive sports are mean this is what i have to do now help me out i'm, I'm sure if i go on youtube i'll find ron hextall fights patrick Waugh. but was this montreal canadians patrick Waugh or carl or avalanche patrick Waugh? avalanche patrick Waugh. so, so it's a bit avalanche I thought you were going to go with Ron Hextall that becomes the first goalie to score a goal and then you get off into a very different direction. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that one, Brian. Okay. It's, it's, it's the Philadelphia aggression. It yeah, comes through sometimes. That is a true. Now, what honest Philadelphian would have said Ron Hextall scores a goal as a favorite? No. Ron Hextall <laughs> starts a fight with uh, Patrick Waugh. Yeah. Probably the best goalie in the league at the time, Patrick Waugh. But Hextall was just going to take him out. All right. As somebody who, who has spent some time in the acting world in New York, what is your favorite Broadway stage production? Musical or play or, yeah. or off-Broadway, off what counts too? Anything in, in the vicinity of New York City stage production? I am blanking on the name of it. It's an Edward Albee play where there are lizard people. And it is definitely my favorite non-musical um, that I've seen on a Broadway stage. I'm blanking on what it's called. I'll look it up. I'll find it later. But it's an Edward Albee play. Um, he's the same author of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, and this is very like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, except in the second act, it's there are literal people in literal lizard costumes. And it's incredible. And it's sort of about, it's, it's very absurdist. It's very about the nature of life. And what does it mean to be a couple? And what does it mean to relax and be on vacation and then be interrupted by giant lizard people seascape seascape absolutely you're a genius did you look that up or do you know that i i have to give credit to google on that one. oh that's incredible i i looked See? up edward albee lizard people and seascape <laughs> popped up on the first several the most popular don nigro play who's uh one of my favorite playwrights as well is called seascape with sharks and dancer and i sometimes get them mixed up but don doesn't produce plays for Broadway. He's much more sort of <laughs> the rung below that. My favorite uh -huh. musical I've ever seen is probably The Book of Mormon. 
because Pokemon, again, I have not seen that. So when it came out, my my mom and my brothers have all seen it, but it was impossible to get a ticket. Couldn't get a ticket. I went pretty recently, actually. There were pandemic tickets for a couple bucks. That was we wore a mask and sat as far away from other people as we could. Uh, I'm looking at this seascape though. I, I've never heard of it before. You mentioned it, but it says here it got the Pulitzer Prize in 1975, and it had in its original cast Frank Langella mm-hmm. and uh, Deborah Kerr, who I mm-hmm. recognize. There's some other actors there. So it was. Um, I think I saw Tyne Daly and Brian Dennehy, and it was who I saw. Brian Dennehy was very good. Your favorite. <laughs> cricket ground experience that you've had as an umpire as an umpire um it's it's definitely some of the finals we've done at uh, at Baisley pond park in new york city um when you do the big finals and semifinals there you get big crowds that come out the entire guyanese community um, of that area comes out to watch there's cooking all day there's music all day the guys will park their van a few feet off of the field and just play the music out of that the whole day. Big presentations. It's very communal. It's very friendly. I like those quite a lot. In a non-umpiring sense, I'll give you the very, the very standard answer of uh, I've been to a, uh, I've been to two test matches, but the first one I went to, I was at Edgebaston in the Hollies stand when James Anderson bowled out India on day four in 2018. And we spent the rest of the day playing gully cricket in the concourse of Edgebaston. And at some point, a young man took off his prosthetic leg, and that's what we batted with. That is the best cricket ground experience I've ever had. Not, I wasn't an umpire, just a spectator, but uh, that was the best cricket ground experience I've ever had. Umpire experience was Baisley Pond. Guyanese, big party. Baisley Pond. Got to be specific. Baisley Pond, not Baisley Cage. Baisley not the pond. cage. No, the pond. The, the one in the middle. <laughs> Baisley Pond. Okay. And then not as an umpire, being Edge able Baston. to use a prosthetic Baston. leg from some other spectator to bat with outside of Edgebeston. It's a 10-year-old kid bowling, you know, 10-year-old Indian kid bowling leg spin at me. I couldn't touch him. I could not touch him, even with the prosthetic leg. Your favorite cricketer of all time? My favorite cricketer of all time and is, <laughs> it, it's an obvious one. There's lots of old spinners and like weird old dudes in the game who I would love to say are my favorite cricketer of all time. But it's, it's really Alyssa Healy. Just above and beyond, Alyssa Healy is one of the most powerful players playing in the game today. I came up through the game as a wicketkeeper, and she was the most inspiring. She's the most inspiring women's keeper that I've seen. I like Sarah Taylor a lot, but Melissa Healy to me is that has that next level of aggression that the Aussies like to show that I appreciate. She's a she's a massive opening batter. She's incredible, and I named one of my rats after her. One of my rats is called Midge, named after Alyssa Healy. I'm gonna have to tag her into this when I could chop this up and. And I think she will be. I have a little Alyssa yeah. Perry bag, but yeah. <laughs> Wait, show no. Hold it up again. They, they don't have again. an Alyssa Healy bag, but they. I found this little on Etsy. I found this little Elise uh, Perry bag, and I keep all of my counters, my umpire counters, in here. <laughs> so we got the Elise Perry bag, but Midge, the pet rat, mm-hmm. is my favorite player, named Absolutely. after Alyssa Healy. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure Alyssa Healy, that may be the most unique honor 
she's had in her career. How many naming a pet rat after her? Oh, can't wait to see her reaction for that one. The three of them are called Midge. The uh, one of them is called Birdie after Dicky Bird, the umpire, and then the other one is Fra- Francis, which is a Fran Drescher reference, which is a Final Word podcast reference. I thought it was going to be about the nanny. It's about the nanny. Yeah, she she's from Queens. I do games in the Flushing Sheffield Shield, the Mister Sheffield Shield out in Flushing. So Mr. yeah, Sheffield we have a good time. Uh, Mister Sheffield, yes. Uh, That's an Adam uh, Collins joke. I'll give it to him. But now, uh, <laughs> now has Fran Drescher ever come out to any uh, cricket matches at uh, Corona Park? She hasn't. We're working on it. We're going to make it happen. There's still time. <laughs> There's still time. I did go to a synagogue once to give a presentation on the Holocaust in Brooklyn, where in the gents' toilets, they had a signed photo of Fran Drescher in, you know, a state of like elegant undress, sort of, that's signed by her. And it's in the gents' toilets in the synagogue when I was doing a Holocaust education program. That was pretty shocking. I have pictures of it. (laughs) I'm not sure how to segue out of that. Let's go on to the next question. Next one. Your favorite non-cricket athlete of all time, right? This is also going to be out of left field, but his name is Joe Canning. He's a hurling player from Portumna in Galway. He was an incredible uh, prodigy. His whole family plays for Portumna. And he came up as like a 16, 17-year-old. And he was the biggest guy in the competition. And he can, he can hit points over the bar from 70, 80, 90 yards away like it's nothing. He can cut the ball off the sideline over the bar like it's nothing. And yeah, I watched him play. I was in Dublin in 2009, ostensibly trying to write my college thesis. I didn't drink at the time, so I wasn't on spring break. I was trying to write my college thesis and I got to see him play in a college match. And it was the level above that he was in about 2009. It was incredible. Joe Canning, Portumna and Galway, hurling player. You are the first and maybe the only guest I will ever have on the show who will name a hurling player as their favorite non athlete. <laughs> we're, we're making history here. Brian Kane, the trailblazer in many, many ways of this podcast. <laughs> Your favorite place to eat out on tour away from home? There is only one answer to this question, and it is Five Guys, obviously, because it's the only place to get the best burger and the best fries no matter what town you're in. Forget about McDonald's and forget about Burger King, all this other fast food. There's five guys will find ourselves there. I'm so sorry that I missed you in Texas because we're going to have to do that at some point. Yeah, me and Nate Hayes, we, we had just come from the five guys and we saw you in the hotel lobby. And now that we know next time we're, we're going to make it happen right now. <laughs> a follow up question to that 7A. You know, there's 223 different ways you can make a five guys burger mm-hmm. according to the sign when you mm-hmm. go and order on the what is your way? What do you put on your five guys burger? Uh, double American cheese, pickles, onions, lettuce, um, and barbecue sauce. That's my John. I, you go for the little fries and just have mm-hmm. them overflowing or, or in the bag. I've never ordered anything but a little. I don't even know what the other ones are called. Is it medium and large? It can't be. What is uh, it? I don't think I've ever gotten that it's much fries. Tall. I think I just get the regular. Is yeah. it like tall or something? <laughs> I don't know. Little, little's enough. Your favorite beverage? I'm a hot tea man and uh i did a i did a project one time on the twinings company from england and i did a bunch of research into them so i i really enjoy buying different flavors of twinings and trying them out but i'm trying to explore a lot more loose tea of which i don't know the brand names so i'm a i'm a big tea and uh, sugar and milk fan so i go i go with a twinings earl gray it's probably my everyday 
sta uh, favorite staple tea in the morning. Your favorite pizza topping? Um, I'm a big fan, actually, of a white pizza. I went through a phase in about, I don't know, middle school or something where I like could not stand pizza sauce. Something about it just really bothered me for a couple of years. And so I think I got really into white pizza around that. And just the garlic of it and the big clumps of cheese on the top. I'm all day. I'm into it. Your favorite movie of all time? My favorite movie of all time is The Quiet Man that was directed by John Ford. It's from 1954, starring John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. It's about an American boxer who moves back to his hometown in Ireland to get away from his troubles back in Pittsburgh, Massachusetts, USA, where he grew up. It's a joke from the movie. My family has been watching this movie every single year around St. Patty's Day for about 45 years at this point. Uh, my favorite scene from the movie is tattooed onto my body. And yeah, I have written college papers about it. So The Quiet Man. Maureen O'Hara, it's this beautiful movie. They, they basically brought like two or three Hollywood people over and then just hired the town. This, this town, I've been to that town. By the way, I went to Ireland and I went to that town and I went to all the places and I touched all the stones and I ate dinner in all the places where they lived in the show. I wandered around the ruins of their fallen cottage in a town way out in the west coast of Galway. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful movie. Maureen O'Hara is, is absolutely stunning in it. It's the most acting John Wayne's ever done, except for the time he played Genghis Khan. Your favorite show to binge watch? When you've got time, Ryan, because mm -hmm. your days are quite jam-packed with a lot of the things. You, but on the rare occasion, pandemic or no pandemic, when you do mm -hmm. have some spare time, What's your go-to binge show? I am a big fan of cartoons for big people. Um, and for the last probably five, six years, it's been Bob's Burgers. I love the way that those people talk to each other and the way that they act as a family. Um, I would have gotten up to hijinks like that, that those kids got up to. And I just love, I love that show. I love that show. It's about working class people who are, sort of working hard to uh, love each other the best they can. Makes you really happy. Brian Kane, I think I think we set a new record. I think How do we you, do? Yeah. You've broken the Nate Hayes record for the longest podcast uh, guest session in the Stars and Stripes podcast history. Another trailblazing moment in the history of the show, Brian. You're, you're <laughs> creating history in so many ways with your work in American cricket on the umpiring scene. And blazing a trail on this podcast too with <laughs> some of the new historic feats you've achieved so see now you... i should have told you at the beginning and i tell most people this like when i meet them or i'm in conversation with them at, the, at a bar and i should have told you this at some point which is basically shut me up when i talk too much because it's a feature not a bug the shoes on the other foot brian just I, out I... here swapping stories man i'm in <laughs> <laughs> so brian kane Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to give you the final word. Anything you feel people really need to know about you that we haven't discussed in the nearly five hours we've been chatting away. I want to thank the people of cricket, basically, for accepting me. Because it's hard to find acceptance in a lot of places, um, no matter where you've grown up, no matter what you're doing. It's hard to find acceptance. And being accepted into the cricket fraternity has been one of the greatest joys of my life. And the only thing that would make it more joyful is if we can exponentially continue to grow the number of women in the game. Thank you very much for having me on, Peter.
Thanks again to Brian Arcane for coming on the podcast to give a bit more insight about the world of the umpires and the match officials on the American cricket scene. I want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, to please subscribe to Patreon. Everybody who is a patriot for the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast helps to keep the podcast running on an episode-by-episode basis, so I appreciate everybody who has contributed so far. And I also want to remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube if you watch the video version, or alternatively, if you like to listen to the podcast on one of the podcasting platforms, subscribe on Spotify, Anchor FM, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and other podcasting platforms where you can get the latest edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast downloaded directly to your app. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Dolphena. God bless America, and God bless American cricket.